0: Listener supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31 these are this is one of the stories of the post-resurrection appearance of jesus to the disciples it's unique here in in john because what john does here is he defines what the father sent the son to do and then the son hands that mission on to the church to the apostles so we get a great insight into the major workings of the church and then the major workings of the behavior of a christian and um <clears throat> So we, we start, it's a familiar story to us, and it's also a story of the struggle for faith. For instance, it includes the story of the doubting Thomas and so forth. But here it, it comes then, when, and the gospel starts out, and it says, In the evening of the same day, the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you and showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and, they said, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And for those whose sins you retain, they are retained. Well, let's pause there now in the Gospel for a while and reflect upon upon the, 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 the dramatic impact of, of, of this encounter between the risen Christ and the apostles. First of all, he comes to them and, and, and shocked, they're shocked, um, because although they have witnessed the empty tomb, although they believe in the risen Christ, they did not expect him to, uh, to, show, to appear to them in, in the room where they, where they are. And they were hiding for fear of the Jews, it says, and it uh, means they were hiding uh, from the Jewish authorities because the Jewish authorities were in a semi-kind of panic. We already have heard in one of the Gospels that they pay the soldiers who are at the tomb um, to uh, a generous sum of money to to lie about what they experienced and what they saw. The soldiers took the money and therefore did what they were told to do to earn it, and that is to tell people that the body was stolen while they were asleep at the, at, the, uh, at the entrance to the tomb, you can see that certainly the, uh, the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, is aware of Jesus' charisma, because why else would they put guards at the door of the tomb if they were not afraid that, that the apostles would come and steal the body and, and then proclaim him risen? So they understood that Jesus had anticipated rising from the dead They saw that, they saw it more clearly than the disciples did because they saw it as response to a threat and the disciples saw it as the fulfillment of a promise. I think that that the defensiveness because of a threat is a more immediate, powerful emotion than the fulfillment of a promise is. And so when Jesus then does in fact rise from the dead, the, the apostles, and it says this, and it says in John's Gospel too, Peter and John went into the tomb and believed. They believed in the resurrection of the Lord, but they still did not know what that meant. And so when he appears to them now in the upper room, they're seeing him as he is. And uh, they're beginning to th- wonder, what, what is this? How does this How does this work? And so most the most reasonable thing to do, very honestly, would be to think it was a ghost, which in fact, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus explicitly denies. And he says, I am not a ghost, touch me. And here he comes in, they're, they're filled with joy. But then he has a message for them, an incredibly important message. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus is handing over his earthly mission to the apostles, to kind of a, a ragtag group of people. Some who were probably estimable, and some of them who were not quite, you know, so so uh, so strong or or so articulate or whatever, so well fixed, whatever. And uh, so, so they're not really an impressive group, actually. So Jesus comes then, and he. And he hands over to them the divine mission. Now this becomes, who are the apostles? The apostles are the foundations of the church. Peter is the rock upon which it is built. That being the case, that what happens now is that Peter and the apostles are the emissaries of the Father to carry out the mission of Jesus in the world. Then Jesus says to them, he breathed on them and says, remember he breathed breathed the breath of life into Adam in the second creation story. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit for those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Okay, so what then do we deduce is the mission of the Lord? um according according to this passage in John's gospel he, what when when god when god created the world he saw that everything was good and yet when he calls the people of Israel they're pretty aware of the fact that everything isn't good we remember the story of their slavery in Egypt we remember you know let's kill all the hebrew boys that are born all of this kind of thing they see, they see war, they see sin, they, they see everything all around them all the time. So how can God then say it's all good? And the answer to that is because it was all good until humanity decided to try and be like God himself and to take over the reins of sovereignty over the whole created order as they knew it. This was the sin of Eve. Eat the apple and you'll be like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it, the serpent says, because then you'll know, know what he knows and then you'll be just like him. So the temptation is to be God, to play God. We certainly know what that's like in this world of ours today. And uh, it is the primordial sin of humanity. Well, if in fact this primordial sin of humanity is the thing that dis- disrupted the goodness of creation, which the scriptures say it did, then in fact our own personal sinfulness contributes to this order in the world, and, uh, and so too does the sinfulness of all humanity. Now, how do we restore the goodness of creation? And Jesus says, that's what I came for is to restore the goodness of creation, to restore the goodness of the human race, and so forth. But then he says, receive the Holy Spirit, for those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. This ability, this is what all the miracles are. It's lifting the burden of sinfulness from the backs of humanity who have been afflicted by the the eons of time in which humanity has been unfaithful, which humanity has sought to usurp the power of God. When humanity has chosen to reject God, how quickly it happened. We think in the desert, when Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and we hear the the Israelites saying, well, where is he? Why isn't he here? He must be dead by now. And uh, so they, they go to Aaron and say, all right, now we need a God because here we are in the middle of the desert and they make the golden calf because that it was, they they were unwilling to trust that Moses would return. And I think we've talked about this before, the fundamental necessity of trust in order to be a believer. And so when he then says, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive, the forgiveness of sin is the mission of the Lord. This is what he's saying in John's gospel, because if he can forgive humanity's sins, then creation itself, Will be restored to good order, and then humanity itself will be restored to its primordial integrity. What we're we're not naive enough to think that that uh, that this forgiveness of sin is going to lead us back into paradise, but it is going to open for us the doors of eternal life, in which the fulfillment of our human nature takes place, in, in its in its wholeness, both in its humanity and its relationship with divinity. So that forgiveness of sin then becomes not only a sacrament within the church in which Jesus is present to forgive our sins, but it's also kind of in a way, it is the, the sole justification um, for our social justice advocates um, that to, to go back and understand that to put band-aids on problems is not to solve them. Um, And uh, we go back to uh, St. Louise de Marillac in the 17th century, where when she'd founded the Daughters of Charity, she said to them, you know, when you go out, do not be do-gooders, but bring Christ in the church to those whom you serve and those whom you help. In other words, your material goods are also an invitation to conversion, an invitation to repentance, an invitation to the spiritual life, an invitation into eternity. This in no way, shape, or form means that there's strings attached to the good that they do. But but it does mean it's done in such a way, in such a representational, symbolic way, that people are aware of the fact that it is the church who has come to them, and it is the church who has ministered to them in the name of Jesus Christ. This, in a way, then by alleviating the hunger and alleviating the poverty and alleviating the sufferings of the sick, Um, the daughters um, in some way fulfill the mission that Jesus gives to the church in this John's Gospel. They lift the consequences of sin from the backs of people and allow them then to have a fuller, happier, freer life. We see this all the way through the story of the church. Her charitable works are part of her evangelization effort, her effort to bring Jesus Christ to all. And uh, it's not like uh, it's it's not it's not like you know we'll, we'll give you the food you need if you're dying of hunger. But first you have to uh, you have to be baptized or you have to say the profession of faith or something. That's not that's not what she meant, and that's not what Jesus means either. And uh, and it's it's where you know the, the the mindset and the consciousness of the saints are in are in um, sync with the intentions and the words of the Lord. So the whole thing is both the interior forgiveness of sin and the exterior resolving of its consequences. This is the total, this is the whole mission of the church, and is something that she has always been active in, even from the days of the apostles. And uh, And if you recall in the, uh, when, when Judas, uh, betrays Christ, some of the speculation is, you know, that because he was the head of the purse, he was in charge of giving alms to the poor. Um, so even in Jesus's day, there was, there was a material reality to this, to this lifting of the burden of sin. And, uh, so this is a constant throughout the story of the church. Um, I know that, um, that uh, we had a rector in the seminary who used to tell us when the church loses the poor, it loses its soul. Um, to a certain extent, that's true, because, because then, it does not fulfill, then it cannot fulfill its whole mission and becomes, as Louise de Marillac says, uh, an organization of, of do-gooders rather than of people who, in, who, who bring Christ in, into the lives of those whom they help and whom they serve. So then, after this, has, after this has been said, and the apostles have received the, uh, the Holy Spirit, and this is interesting too, um, you know, Luke has a chronology to the resurrection, ascension, and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. John does not there is no chronological issue here when Jesus appears to them he appears as the risen lord who has already ascended to the father and uh, and he also he also brings with him the fact that uh, that he is nevertheless not a ghost he's not just a spirit he uh, he is someone in fact is in Luke's gospel he says to prove to them he's not a ghost he says to them give me give me uh, give me uh, something to eat. And the same thing when he encounters the disciples on the shores, and I think it's in Matthew's Gospels, on the shore of, of uh, Lake Tiberias. And, uh, and he's, he sits down and has breakfast with them. He does everything to show that this is a reality. This is not an illusion, and this is not just in some way, shape, or form. Um, a kind of miraculous hallucination or something. He wants to concretize it, and he wants to make it real. And this is the next part of the gospel, how he does that in this meeting of the apostles. Because the gospel goes on, Thomas called the twin, who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And when the disciples said, We have seen the Lord, he answered, Unless I see the holes that, that the nails made in his hands and can put my finger into the holes into the into his side, um, I refuse to believe. So Thomas is saying this is so incredible incredible to me that I, I just can't believe it because although we might accept that he rose from the dead, we don't know what that means, and certainly it doesn't mean he's going to walk in the door and is as in, in, in the flesh. And so, eight days later, however, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. The doors were closed, but Jesus came in and stood among them. Once again, John wants us to know this is not a resuscitated body. This is a whole different state of being, um, and that whole different state of being is uh, is a, a risen state of being, and, uh, and Paul calls it a spiritual body. Um, but whatever it is, it is a transformed. And where did they first, where did Peter, James, and John first see this? It was, of course, at the transfiguration. Peace be with you, he said. And then he turned to Thomas and said, Put your finger here, look, here are my hands. Give me your hand, put it into my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. And Thomas replied, My Lord and my God my Lord and my God, which becomes the foundational um, mission and, and prayer of, of, the, of the church. That, at least in the old days, we were taught to say that during the elevation of the mass, when the elements are raised. But it is a profession of faith and, uh, and a profession of trust. And then Jesus says to him, um, you believe because you can see me. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believe we are among those who are blessed because we have not seen and yet believe. This is, an ex- this is a very significant kind of reality that uh, that and I, and I think that it was something that we reflected upon for Easter Sunday, the idea that the only way we have for faith. And certainly faith is a gift. It's a gift that the Lord gives us. And uh, that was certainly defined at, at the Council, I, I believe, the Council of Arles. Um, in, in the fourth century, I think, um, that the initium fide comes from God. In other words, the initiative of faith, the beginnings of faith, is a divine gift to humanity. Now, he says, though, that uh, once that gift has been given, now you have to believe through the church, and uh, and that's why he says to Peter, you know, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why he says to the disciples, um, as the Father has sent me, I send you, receive the Holy Spirit who sends you, forgive. That's the issue, that's what's going on. How do we believe? How do those of us today, how do I sitting here and how do, how do you in your daily life, why do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? We can say it is because the words the Lord has spoken, and that's true. But chances are because somebody led us to this faith and we trusted them. And because we trusted them, we followed them. And we followed what they told us of their experience and their belief. When trust breaks down within families, and when trust breaks down within society, and when trust breaks down within the church, then we stand in the shoes of Thomas. Unless I see the holes that the nails made in his hands and put my finger into the holes they made, unless I can put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe that without this ability to trust, to trust the source, the fonts of Revelation, to trust, Paul even says that, how can I believe if I have not heard? When we know, trust no one who speaks of these things, then we, we will not believe what they say. So that it is, it is, very honestly, in a very strange sort of way, it is a community, a vast global community, whose faith relies on trusting what the church has told them, what their ancestors have told them, what their grandparents or parents have told them, what their friends might have experienced, what their siblings might have experienced. In all of it, it's a vast network built on trust. And uh, because now, and Thomas is an example for us. He did not trust his 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 brothers. If when they said we have seen the Lord, and then that's when he says, "Unless I put my hands in the hole, my fingers in the holes, my hand in the side, I, I will not believe." That that he didn't trust them. Now, the Lord overcame his doubt. The Lord overcame his lack of faith by appearing to him. Well, that doesn't happen very much. And uh, it certainly does in the visions of Margaret Mary Alacoque and and many others have have personally seen the Lord and have personally conversed with the Lord. But that's a very rare thing. And uh, so most of us are left to simply believe and to simply believe in the Lord because we trust the sources that brought that truth to us. And so then Jesus becomes, that's why Jesus said, "'Happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. "'Blessed are those, happy are those. "'Blessed are we, for we have believed. "'Did we believe the religious women in the schools? "'Did we believe the priests? "'Did we believe the pope? "'Did we believe our grandparents? "'Did we believe our parents?' Somewhere along the way, one of those things falls into place as the one who kind of convicted us of the faith or helped us to become convicted of the faith." And so in this then, this story of the doubting Thomas is very important for us because it lets us know what Thomas lacked and could not therefore believe was the willingness to trust the apostles, to trust his brothers. And and I think that as we see the breakdown of the church in the contemporary world, it's because of a lack of trust. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. We need not go into depth in that. There's the, certainly the scandals, there's the inadequacies, there's the... There's uh, the mistakes. There's all those kind of, why should I trust an institution that has messed up so badly as this one has, and so forth. It's, in a way, in a way you, you, you know why it's happening. Um, but in another way, um, you know, I, I think, of, uh, I think of, of a woman I met long ago in, uh, down in southeastern Ohio. And uh, when the nuns took off their habits and came and lay clothes to church, she said they walked in, and I walked out the side door and never went back. Um, In a way, that's a very shallow faith. But in another way, it's somehow or other that's what, what she really trusted had seemed to her to have betrayed her. And so in that betrayal then, she turned away and rejected the faith. I also, I hope very much that um, that she was she was headed to Newark to a, some kind of a care facility. I hope very much that she regained that faith before she died. She was an interesting lady and apparently a good lady so <clears throat> then we go back there's a, there's another issue in all of this. Um, I think that the lesson from Thomas is he didn't trust the church he didn't trust the apostles, and therefore he could not believe. Think about that and think about how we represent the church in the midst of the modern world. And it's not that we have to justify the things she does wrong, but we have to emphasize the things that she does right and has done right throughout the millennia. So the next thing is, of course, that we can't reconcile John's gospel with Luke's gospel because Luke has a definitive chronology. There's Easter, and then 40 days later, the, resurrection, the Ascension, and then 10 days later, there's Pentecost. In John's Gospel, look at what's happening. Um, eight days later, the next week, Jesus shows up. He confers the Holy Spirit on them. And, uh, and he shows up in, in glorified and therefore, in, in, in John's mind, having already ascended. You know, Augustine says, when Jesus was with the Father, he also was present to us. And we find Jesus affirming that in John's Gospel as being the one who spoke in the burning bush to Moses. On the other hand, for he says, I am, which is the name of the God who was in the burning bush. On on the other hand, he was very much, so he was very much present to us, but he was still at the right hand of the Father. Then Augustine says, when he came down among us in the flesh... He still remained present to the Father, so there was never that shattering of the union between Father and Son just because of the Incarnation. Now there is there is um, theological reflection on the Word falling silent on the cross and that being a rupture actually in the relationship between Father and Son. That's speculative, and it's devotional. It's worth something. It's worth thinking about. And it's worth praying about, to cry and come and to understand what this strange dynamic is in the incarnation of the Lord. So that what we find then is Luke does this for catechetical reasons. He does it so, we can emphasize, so that we can focus and emphasize one, one phase of the risen Lord's um, connectivity with us um, at a time. And don't become overwhelmed with the whole reality. And so so what happens then is that uh, we find Luke easier to follow liturgically because it gives us the chance to focus on the resurrection of the Lord, the ascension of the Lord, and the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. For John, it's all one, and it all takes place immediately. So that what happens for us then in this gospel is we learn, first of all, what the mission really is, We learn how to execute that mission, we learn why we have that mission, we learn what that mission is, we learn that the danger to that mission is lack of trust in those who who witness to us and those who pass on to us the, the, the deposit of faith, the wholeness of faith. We see this going on in the modern world, where faith is is shattered and faith is so sociologized if it's such a word that uh, that there's nothing left of it um but however, read this gospel, reflect upon this gospel; it tells us everything, everything actually, and is therefore probably one of the most one of the most faith impacted gospels that we have. Um, for it deals with the mission. It deals with who Jesus is. It deals with the coming of the Spirit. It deals with the mission that we have. It deals with our problems and struggles with that mission, and uh, it has Jesus affirm the fact that our belief, which is based on the trust of others, is makes us and brings us to blessedness. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, AM eight twenty. Archives of Foundations and Faith are available at saintgabrielradio.com.